The Teach Middle East podcast is brought to you by Schoolfinder.ae. Schoolfinder.ae is a comprehensive schools directory serving the United Arab Emirates. Is your school a member? Go to Schoolfinder.ae to find out more. Now, enjoy this episode. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Teach Middle East podcast. My name is Lisa Grace, and today we're talking gifted and talented, and we're talking with Margaret O'Donnell, and she is calling in from Ireland of all the beautiful places to call in from. And we're going to be diving into some of the strategies that educators maybe are aware of and need reminding of, and maybe they are new to educators, but these are strategies that are effective in educated, gifted, and talented students. You are listening to the Teach Middle East podcast, connecting, developing, and empowering educators. Welcome to the podcast, Margaret. Uh, Thank you very much. And uh, good morning, uh, good afternoon, everybody from Ireland. And it's lovely to be uh, on this podcast with uh, Lisa Grace to be talking about the gifted and talented child. Now, my name uh, is Margaret O'Donnell, as you know, and I'm currently working as a senior lecturer with the Institute of Child Education and Psychology Europe here in Ireland. And I started my career as a teacher and I worked in both mainstream and special school settings. And then I was seconded to the National Council for Curriculum and Assessment Now, that's the council that advises the ministry on all matters to do with curriculum at early childhood and primary and post-primary level. While I was there for six years, I headed up the production of guidelines for teachers of students with general learning disabilities. And also, I was responsible for developing the guidelines for the gifted and talented pupil. Now, these guidelines went to all schools to help teachers work with a diverse school population and to ensure that all pupils were effectively included at all levels. Now, prior to my work with ISEP, I was a lecturer in the Special and Inclusive Department in Dublin City University. And there we provided continuous professional development for teachers who were taking additional qualifications in special education. Now, addressing the needs of the gifted and talented child has always been an area of interest to me. As here in Ireland, until the guidelines were published, very little attention was given to these children. And the focus was more firmly placed on students with special and additional needs. Of course, these pupils who are gifted and talented also have special educational needs. And they will not achieve their potential until teachers know how to address these needs. So today I'm going to be talking about a few things that will help in that regard. Now, I mentioned that I worked with the Institute of Child Education and Psychology, uh, Europe, and I'd just like to tell you a little bit about the work they do. They're an independent educational and research institute, and they're highly regarded and trusted as one of the leading providers in continuing professional development and university accredited programs, both here in Ireland and abroad. Since they have trained 25,000 teachers across 58 countries so as to ensure that teachers can provide quality education for all pupils at all levels. Now, 
In relation to the UAE, I understand that there is a current drive towards more equal educational opportunities for all students in the UAE, regardless of their abilities or disabilities. And I was reading the MOE strategy document 2010 to 2020. And one strategy that's entitled School for All strongly supports the principle of equity in educational opportunities for all students to include those identified as gifted students. So this discussion today is very timely indeed. Thank you. Thank you so much, Margaret. So let's kind of dive in and, and unpack it just a little bit. For teachers, who would you consider to be a gifted and talented student? How would you define that student? Lisa Grace, thank you very much. That's a really good question. It's fundamental that we understand who they are. That's the first thing we need to know. And throughout history, these children who are gifted and talented were treated with awe and suspicion, with many myths and misunderstandings surrounding them, such as they're lucky to be so clever. They're victims of pushy parents. They come only from high socioeconomic backgrounds. They need less attention. And sure, don't all students have special abilities? Now, all of these statements are, of course, myths and misunderstandings. They're false, as we will see as we progress through our conversation today. Again, going back, and even currently in some jurisdictions, the idea of making special provision for gifted and talented children is especially contentious, with a lot of people arguing that these children have a head start in life already, and that time and money is better spent on students at the other end of the spectrum. So in order to consider these arguments, it's helpful for us to just see, discuss who they are and to get absolute clarity about that. So gifted and talented students are students who achieve or have the ability to achieve at a level significantly in advance of the average of their year group in school. Now, the term gifted and talented, it encompasses students who were more able across the curriculum, as well as those who show talent in one or more specific areas. Now, gifted and talented students are not an homogenous group. Many may be underachieving due to boredom, frustration, or low self-esteem and stress and anxiety. Recent estimates in the Irish context suggest that 5% of gifted and talented students could have a learning difficulty due to a sensory impairment, physical difficulty, or a specific learning difficulty. So in understanding gifted and talented, we need to know how do we define ability and intelligence. And theories of intelligence can be broken down into two major types, domain general and domain specific. Now, domain general theories of intelligence are typified by Spearman's G way back in 1906. And he claimed that intelligence is innate and hereditary. The assessment of IQ is driven by psychometric measurements, which describe a correlation between a number of different measurements of cognitive ability. And so we got the Stanford BNA scale for IQ. Measurement of this general intelligence factor 
is possessed in varying degrees by every one of them. Now, the domain-specific conceptions of intelligence, they have been part of the debate since at least 1938. And the domain-specific models, they reject the idea of a single underlying factor of intelligence. They divide intelligence into a number of separate intelligences or capacities. And capacities included in these models which are tied to IQ measurements such as language, comprehension, or analytic ability. And of course, we have Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences. So gifted and talented children are defined as children and youth with outstanding talent who perform or show the potential for performing at remarkably high levels of accomplishment when compared with others of their age, experience, or environment. Now, these children and youth, they show high performance capabilities in intellectual, creative and or artistic areas. And they possess an unusual leadership capacity or they can excel in specific academic fields. Now, some people believe that they only belong to pushy parents or high socioeconomic groups. But the fact is that outstanding talents are present in children and youth from all cultural groups across all economic strata and in all areas of human endeavor. I have a question for you, Dr. Ma uh, yeah. Margaret. So you said that they sometimes are often bored and underperforming and possibly misbehaving. And I wondered how you will be able as a teacher to tell the difference between a child who is gifted and talented and just simply bored or you know, really just misbehaving because they're not being challenged to a child who has behavioral problems. How do we tell the difference as a teacher? Well, first of all, we need to look at before teachers go into telling the difference between sort of behavioral problems and exceptional ability, we need to first talk about how they are assessed and how they're identified. How do teachers identify our a gifted and talented child as distinct from a child who has behavioural and, and emotional difficulties. So it's you might think that teachers can do this quite easily, that they're easy to identify. However, many of them go unnoticed and their needs go unmet. And the new multi-focused definition of gifted and talented child, it recognises the central importance of atypical development. Now, this is key to differentiating between the emotionally disturbed child and the gifted and talented. There's atypical development in the lives of these children. And this implies that we need to go beyond the traditional psychometrically based ideas to explore their educational, their emotional and their psychological needs. Now, how do we do that? There's two main approaches, observation of characteristics and assessment. Now, what do I mean by atypical development? Now, atypical development in a child can be described as observing a child achieve at a much further advanced rate than children of his or her own age cohort. For example, a little girl I talk about, Jessica, at two weeks, she smiled on cue. At 14 months, she spoke in sentences. And she had a vocabulary of more than 250 words. By age two, she could do a 60-piece jigsaw puzzle. She was so far beyond the other children in her daycare placement that she became the teacher's helper. 
So the key factors for teachers to know is that assessment, there's a multiple approach to assessment. Observation is key. A parent or guardian can nominate that their child is more advanced. Parents may notice that their child develops skills more quickly in comparison to children of the same age. Rapid development in early childhood may be noticed and recorded by uh, medical checkups, by health personnel. Children are sitting, walking, doing all the physical things much quicker. Peer nomination. Friends, even in, in preschool or in class, may draw attention to the child's development of early speech, the physical development, or the use of extended vocabulary. And then we have self-nomination because these pupils will say, teacher, I know all that in a particular subject area. Teacher, I know that already. Then teacher nomination. The teacher may notice that a child can accomplish tasks far beyond normal expectations for the similar age cohort. And sometimes, Lisa Grace, just as you said, if they go unnoticed, at a post-primary level, subject teachers at later stage may notice that challenging tasks, particularly in history and science or in maths, are accomplished with ease. And the student becoming very bored very easily, possibly causing, as you said, disruption or opting out. Now, often these students will opt in or they will opt out. If they opt out, they will cause disruption because they're bored. If they opt in, they will just become quiet and withdrawn and make no demands on the teacher. Or lastly, they can be identified by a psychologist. Now, the teacher needs to know the strengths and needs of all the children in her care or his care. And they need to be able to, to look at how uh, assessment is carried out in relation to these pupils and to profile them accurately. And there will be significant differences in their achievement in one or more areas. And that will show that this behaviour is not the outcome of, of just some emotional disorder, but it's actually the fact that they are not being challenged. So, so this is, this is the, the key factor uh, for teachers to observe here. And it's, it's constantly looking at that assessment and revisiting that. And also, we'll talk a little bit about the involvement of teachers and different levels in a while. You know, what makes me think once I, I was listening to you is the fact that very few schools that I know have that whole holistic approach to identifying gifted and talented students. Often it is noticed when they excel at one or two subjects, but there isn't that kind of 360 approach to it. I wonder in your experience if you've noticed the areas in which schools have been failing to properly identify and serve the students. What are some of the things you've noticed in your practice? Well, some of the things that I've noticed in my practice is that there is this desire to teach to the middle. And there is this idea that, you know, classes are age stratified. And so that you teach to the middle and that the pupils at the two ends of the spectrum, uh, that they become sort of problematic. Those who are advanced in their learning and those who perhaps need more time uh, to revisit the learning in a spiral approach to learning. So quite often teachers just go in and they're concentrating on getting through curriculum content and all of that. So they don't differentiate. They fail to differentiate for those who are more advanced in their learning and can absorb 
they for gifted and talented, they have advanced comprehension and they learn at a faster pace. And that may place them two to eight years ahead of their age peer group. Now, that is very significant. And they have an ability to generalize and to work comfortably with abstract ideas and to synthesize diverse relationships. So they need, teachers need to understand that these pupils need complexity and intensity in the assigned tasks. They need greater depth and novelty. Now, they may have trouble with sensitivities, tying a shoelace, or difficulties in formal social relationships. And the key thing to remember here is that even though they're cognitively advanced, socially and emotionally, they're at the level of their peer cohort. And there's asynchrony between their cognitive thinking and their ability and their social and emotional. So that, that's very important that teachers are aware of that. Now, teachers need to know that these pupils need, I call it the three Ds. They need to discover, to develop and to demonstrate their abilities in non-threatening and safe environments. And they need validation from significant people in their lives. And teachers are the significant people in their lives for all of the school day. Their learning needs are best addressed by focusing on their areas of strength in all new learning situations. So that 360 view needs to be taken, not just of pupils who are gifted and talented, but really of the whole class and how pupils learn and what they come to the learning task with. Now, overall, the key thing is that teachers need to provide challenge. These pupils need to be challenged at the level of which they are functioning. Now, people will say, well, what constitutes challenge? What constitutes appropriate challenge in school? There's no catch-all definition of what constitutes appropriate challenge. However, the task for schools is to ensure that all students receive an education appropriately differentiated to their learning needs with sufficient challenge to ward off boredom and frustration. And that's, that's very often seen, and I would have seen that quite a bit, you know, boredom and frustration. So then we have to look at what approaches and methodologies are best suited to address these needs. How can the teacher ensure that they all achieve an education appropriately differentiated with sufficient challenge? What can the teacher do? Now, in the case of gifted and talented children, this means using three approaches. Enrichment. So enrichment is any type of activity learning, which is outside the core of learning, which most pupils undertake. So it's additional to the established curriculum and it's a supplement to it, not a replacement for the core work being undertaken. So enrichment activities then offer a wide range of opportunities for gifted and talented pupils. And these can be things like field trips, sports clubs, belonging to music workshops, chess clubs, visiting museums, and it could be project work that is contracted between the teacher and the pupil that's in the area of expertise of the pupil, their area of interest. And when this, these enrichment activities are given to these students, it's not like just go off and do whatever you want. It's very systematically coordinated with timelines for reporting back. These pupils can go off and do that research on their own. They can report back and then conference with the teacher conference with the teacher as to how they have made progress and what they have found out. 
Now, one thing here that's that's really important to say is pupils have very valuable insights into their own learning needs. And the teacher needs to allow the voice of the pupil to be heard in any of these activities. These pupils can tell you. They can tell you what they want to do. They can tell you what their interest is. And if their interest is in something, nearly all the curriculum subjects can be taught through using their interests in that area. Now, the second approach is extended lesson plans. So it's extension. And extension is similar to enrichment. However, it's more structured and predetermined, and it's linear and hierarchical in, in a pathway. So it enables the students to increase their depth of knowledge their skills and understanding. While most of the class is sort of working to three or four objectives, this student can be go deeper into it. It widens the student's horizon within curriculum subjects. So they can go much, much further. Uh, the curriculum can be compacted because they already know the starting point for them is much further off. So they can then extend their lessons so that they're not bored starting at the beginning that they already know. Now, the last approach is acceleration through coursework. And this is where children go into classes beyond their age group. And this needs to be considered carefully. Now, while some endorse acceleration in appropriate circumstances for particular subjects, it must be remembered that despite significant academic advancement in some areas, the student's emotional development will often match their chronological age. So there's a lot of preparation needs to be made for if you're going to put it, um, a pupil into an accelerated uh, sort of programme. And the class, the receiving class has to be well prepared. The parents have to be involved and continuous monitoring uh, of, of that approach. Now, I spoke about differentiation. Now. Differentiation was a buzzword in the 1980s, but simply explained, it's matching the work given to the student with the student's ability to do it. And I'll repeat that. Differentiation simply explained is matching the work given to the student with the student's ability to do it. And this is key to remember in relation to students who are gifted and talented, because quite often the work is not at their level. So what can we do? What can teachers use? Now, we can use choice boards, tic-tac-toe menus, so that when they have completed uh, the required tasks, they get choices in what they can go and how they can further. We can create learning centres in our classrooms. We can provide them with learning menus. And this, again, is extending the learning. It's making them active in their own engagement. We can have flexible groupings offering choice to learners, interest groups, choice of partners, peer tutoring, jigsaw groups, ability groups. And all of this is very important to move away from this sameness that I spoke about earlier, because in recognition of the varying levels, we have to accommodate and give choice to these pupils to go further and to show their extended ability to learn. Now, as a teacher, one Thing that I found really useful that helped me always in my planning was looking at Bloom's taxonomy. Now, Bloom's taxonomy is really a system, and he identifies six levels of cognitive learning. And I used to always keep this in my folder to make sure that my learning objectives addressed all six. And the six levels are remembering, understanding, applying, analyzing, evaluating, and creating. 
So he claimed that teachers often work at the lowest level, remembering and understanding. So he claims that in order to meet the needs of pupils, we need to encourage critical thinking. And this is particularly relevant for gifted and talented students. We have to provide them with opportunities to see bigger pictures, to create connections and patterns. What is the general rule? Like asking, like explore future possible consequences, evaluating, teaching students how to balance decisions against reason and evidence. How do you know? What are the arguments for and against? And creating, giving students opportunities to create something new with the knowledge and skills. How would you change the ending of the story? What would happen if? All of these approaches are really, really fundamentally important for all pupils, but particularly for pupils who are gifted and talented. And this will start to engage them in the learning. They will sort of be learning at their own level and it will certainly stave off boredom and disruptive behaviour. Those are some fantastic strategies that you've just shared with us. I I was just sitting here just listening and taking notes and taking mental notes, even though I'm no longer in the classroom. I think, should I go back into the classroom? I'm going to be listening to this podcast episode again and again to get these strategies and embed them. I want to ask you, though, do you think that teachers shy away from doing some of these things? Because I don't think they don't know. I think they sometimes shy away from them because it takes a lot of time and they don't have enough time to do this kind of higher level planning. Do you think it takes more time? What are your thoughts on that? It's an area that teachers have not got much sort of professional development in. And it's not a matter of time. But I think that for schools, and I know now that there's a big focus on gifted and talent in your jurisdiction. And I have to say that sometimes schools can be doing their best to provide challenging experiences for students. But these are not explicitly banned as activities for gifted and talented. They're doing their best. And sometimes they're unaware that they may be providing challenge. Other teachers then are unable to. So I would say. Rather than say that teachers are not doing it, we don't know that they're not doing it. They possibly are trying to do it, but it's not specifically banked under approaches and methodologies or policies towards gifted and talented. So what I would say that for schools to begin to look at this problem at sort of a local and rural and a national level, there needs to be a basic audit of where they are. So they need to look at all their curriculum policies in the school and particularly additional support for learning policies. And do these contain statements concerning provision for gifted and talented? Are those pupils mentioned in those policies? Then are there systems for recognising the wide range of abilities of gifted and talented pupils and for monitoring their progress? Do schools have that? Are there procedures for involving the parents in discussions and planning the work for gifted and talented pupils? How Is there progress discussed at staff and department level, faculty meetings? The school handbook, does it include a statement on the school's approach to gifted and talented pupils? Is it there? Are there opportunities for staff to develop their understanding and skills in relation to teaching gifted and talented pupils? Are there shared understandings across the school as to who these pupils are? Do they understand who they are and what they're dealing with? So, 
looking at the evidence, and we, we can't say that teachers are not doing it, but looking at the evidence, there was research, i just give you a snapshot of research that was conducted in Ireland and Scotland and the US. And they looked at uh, schools that were doing this quite effectively. And four key things emerged. One was that head teachers or principals in these studies were strongly motivated to lead by example. So the leadership has to come from the top. Head teachers were concerned with the holistic rather than merely the academic development of learners. And there's a need for continuing lifelong professional development to support both head teachers and principals and staff in this area. It's an area that has been neglected in Ireland and in your country and in many other countries. So the higher education and wider external partners, they also need to consider how teachers are prepared to teach in schools and that the education of the gifted and talented is fundamentally in their programmes as well. So there's many layers to the educational system and it's also connected to a range of community services. So head teachers need to draw on these layers and the range of services to help support schools. There's a need for a national awareness. There's a need for a whole media sort of campaign. And way back in 2002 in the UK, they had a project called Excellence in Cities, which they put 20 million into. And that was basically to identify, schools identify the pupils who are gifted and talented. And they put on all kinds of programs for them. Now, we don't have anything like that in Ireland, but that's way back in 2002. Many countries have made much more progress than we have, certainly. So it's not that teachers are negligent. It's basically that I think they need to think about it. They need to lead it. They need to kickstart it. They need to look at their staff and they need to learn about how does the staff learn about these new pedagogies? Like if they don't know them, what facilities are being created that they can learn about them? So there's a need for a continuous plan for lifelong CPD so that the needs of the teachers and the pupils will be addressed. So the head teachers need to kickstart and they need to sort of create a team in the school to allow time for the staff to meet and to talk about their understandings. How are they going to plan and support? So with no agreed definition of who gifted and talented are and no clear way of identifying them, Teachers' understanding of who they are becomes key in the whole identification process. And that's the clarity. So I think that at school level and at leadership level, this is where the audit has to begin. So here's my other question for you, because that was fantastic. A lot of schools, when they do the audit and they've identified, they try to put the gifted and talented students in sets. What is your opinion on setting these children and just having them in groups by themselves? Is that a good or a bad thing? It's neither a good or a bad thing. It's good in some ways if it's focused particularly on learning. If there are more advanced, setting is an approach that is acceptable at class level. But we have to consider that they have other needs as well. They have social and emotional needs. They have needs to have friends across, you know, the whole class cohort. What I would suggest is the setting would not be used exclusively, that it would be used for particular areas of, say, uh, expertise, but that these pupils quite often, they're not gifted entirely across all areas. You will find perhaps one subject area, in other subjects, they maybe have low motivation and so on. So if they synchronous, the whole sort of thing. So you can't say they're good at everything because they may not be. 
So it's important that you have mixed ability groupings as well, that they have choices for individual learning pathways and also perhaps the setting or the ability groupings. So it's a mixture of all of those things. It's not just exclusively one approach. One approach will not work. I, I get that. And sometimes what I do notice as well is that when you have gifted and talented students in the classroom, some teachers use them as helpers. Does this harm or help the student? Yeah, and that's something that comes up all the time, like put them in a mixed ability group so that they can help perhaps the students who are struggling. That, that is not to be advised. Having said that, In a particular mixed ability group, it can be used quite effectively because a lot of these pupils have very, very good leadership skills and they can work to help other pupils. And it does help them socially and emotionally to actually mix and to learn how to work with pupils who are less able than themselves. But it's not something that should be recommended on a continuous basis. Absolutely not. No. They need to progress their own learning at their own, for example, if they were doing a project in science or something like that. The teacher should ensure that the learning objectives for them are advanced and that they have enrichment in their learning. Of course, they can be helping other pupils as well at the level that they're at if they're cooperating in a project manner. But in each area, they need to have their learning differentiated according to their ability. I do agree with you. Something you touched on previously about how gifted and talented students can be helped. Um, And as we're winding down the podcast, I wanted to talk about acceleration because there's been a lot of talk now since the pandemic about individualized learning pathways. And you touched on that as well. And then you talked a bit about acceleration in learning. And we have been looking at individual learning pathways, especially since the pandemic started. And I wonder, in terms of gifted and talented students, is it really good to have them accelerate through the stages of schooling where you have like really young kids doing university courses or finishing degrees before they finish their high school age? Is this a good thing? I'm just trying to get your expert advice. Well, we don't we don't have that acceleration at school level, at primary or post-primary level in Ireland. But what we do have, and Dublin City University provide a summer school for gifted and talented pupils. And they come there for say two or three weeks and they stay in the on campus. And it really is a very, very successful enjoyment for them because they actually mix with pupils that have the same ability level as themselves and year on year they come back and their programs are very very advanced some of them are at university level even though I was talking to a colleague of mine who was teaching on the program last year and there were six-year-olds doing neuroscience uh, at the level of first-year medical students six-year-olds and they were well able for it and asking them really advanced questions and stuff like that we have to remember that these pupils can be two to eight years advanced uh, mentally So uh, an outlet like that is a thing, but to continuously advance them through the schooling, and we don't have a policy on it in Ireland, it's not really advised. It's basically that the curriculum is differentiated through using those methods that I talked about, particularly enrichment and enhancement. The acceleration perhaps at post-primary if they're at a level in maths, you know, and then back to their own cohort group. And that's the way it happens. 
and that's the way it's advised. Does that answer your question? No, it does. It does answer my question. Actually, you did answer it quite straight. You said it's not advised because I was wondering, you know, how will they cope emotionally if they're just academically advancing through the different stages and they're leaving with degrees? Yeah, one thing that um, we have to say, like, there's one particular group you know, you have exceptional ability and so on, but they're profoundly gifted and talented. And they're people with IQ of 170 plus. Now, they're absolutely not, not, not points, you know, whatever, of the percentage of the population. And when we were writing these guidelines, one mother of a boy who had that IQ level came to me and said, these guidelines don't do anything for my son. And they wouldn't because that level, profoundly gifted and talented, the curriculum cannot be differentiated for that level. But for the other levels, for the gifted and talented at the other levels of IQ, like from 100 to 120, that would be high ability level, and then from 120 to 160, the curriculum as we have it here can be differentiated to ensure that their learning needs are met. So I think this thing of acceleration, perhaps, you know, the only rationale we would see for it here would be the profoundly exceptionally. And one of the main, one of the main things we talked about, the social and emotional. Now, you see, it's very important that we don't just focus on sort of academic outcomes, that we're focusing on the holistic development of the child. And these pupils can actually struggle. When I was working with the parents in developing the guidelines, they changed school many times because of this thing of their needs not being met. And sometimes they have issues to do with self-esteem and they can have what they call perfectionism. And it's nothing is right. They keep doing it and doing it and doing it. Tear up the picture. Do it again. Do it again. It's not finished, teacher. It has to be perfect. And that can be very crippling. Now, their social self-concept may be very poor and they may believe that other pupils and teachers hold negative views of them, you know, like the crazy professor, that they think that other pupils. Now, the other thing is that there's this issue of asynchrony. The developmental age that they have and their academic functioning, there's a total asynchrony between those two. And one mother said to me, like, how can he write a symphony and throw himself on the floor at the supermarket because he didn't get a bag of crisps and make a total, you know, scene? And it's that social and emotional. And when these children are playing with others, and like if the other pupils don't get the rules of the game really quickly, they're very impatient. They can just, you know, and there's where behaviour problems can come in. Or if they have a particular interest, um, one little boy that I knew, he had a particular interest in um, butterflies. And when kids came to his house to play, tell them all about the butterflies. And of course, the other kids just move away. So he had to be taught how to mix at a level with his cohort not tell them all about aircraft or butterflies because that's not what they were interested. They came to his house to play, to kick football. And then there is this issue as well, and the teachers need to know, a social adjustment. There's an identity. There's a desire to fit in. These pupils want to belong with their peer group. And then there's also issues to do with family relationships. The parents. Parents are often fearful of going to a school to advocate for their child. They're often afraid. And teachers sometimes will think, oh, Mrs. So-and-so thinks her child's a genius. And that can be very difficult. And then for siblings, my research tells us this is often jealousy. 
from siblings because these um, gifted and talented are getting more attention and like they're in competition with them at home. And of course, they never become as at that level. So there's lots of social and emotional issues that, that teachers need to know. And basically, the main problem the teachers need to think about, they need to know and learn how to provide an optimal learning environment. And that that means challenge at an appropriate level of the pupil's ability. And we need to stop teaching to the middle. We need to have this paradigm in our heads that in this group of children, there is difference right across the whole spectrum. Like some pupils have talents in one area, you know, and some people are motivated. Some pupils don't like the teacher. Some like this subject, don't like another. So this difference and variance is sort of the key to recognising and meeting the needs of all students right across the continuum. So teachers need to treat gifted and talented pupils as individuals and not expect them to conform to what the teacher wants them to conform to and to recognise they have different ways of looking at things and of absorbing new information. So this is not a threat to the teacher. This is to be celebrated and recognised. And quite often they do know more than the teacher in subject areas. Of course they do, but that should be respected. It should be recognised. And like I said before, there is a notion of this sameness, everybody learning at the same level. So gifted and talented students need to be valued and they need to be encouraged, they need to be listened to, to have their voice included. And I couldn't emphasise this more. Pupils have such valuable insights into their own learning needs. Many schools fail to see that these students have special educational needs. They think, oh, they're very smart, they're very gifted. They need accelerated and differentiated learning or they will not reach their potential. And this will not happen unless... The whole thing is addressed in a comprehensive manner at school level and that all the education stakeholders are committed to doing this audit and to getting it started and having a comprehensive approach to the gifted and talented. That is a fantastic place to wrap up the podcast. Margaret, if people want to get in touch with you to learn more and to ask you more questions about how to deal with, how to teach, how to make provision for gifted and talented students, how could they get in touch with you? You do have my email and um, I would, if students wanted it or if you wanted, um, I mean, I could always give a few lectures online if that was required on the gifted and talented. We could go into, you know, more uh, detail of different aspects. We could do that, but if they can contact me at my email, I'll put that in the show notes and I'll also just connect whatever other connection points from Elaine in the show notes for you guys. But it's been eye opening like it's been. I think this is the episode that teachers should listen to as professional development and listen to it over and over again and jot down some of the notes and strategies and see whether or not they need to conduct that audit in their school if they haven't done so and start thinking seriously about the provisions that are being made for gifted and talented students in their school. Thank you very much, Margaret, for being on the uh, podcast. Lisa, Grace, last thing, I will also send you a link to the guidelines which we have here developed in Ireland. Right, right. That would be and very useful. There's a um, very good chapter on differentiation and lots and lots of information and lots of links to websites that would really support your teachers. 
yes oh we would definitely appreciate that and you can put that link up i'll send it to elaine now you can put up the link and teachers can go through those guideline documents and see the profiles of different types and so on but they're actually they're very very good guidelines amazing thank you margaret thank you very very much you're very welcome these grace and it's lovely lovely to meet you and lovely to chat with you thank you Thank you for listening to the Teach Middle East podcast. Visit our website, teachmiddleeast.com, and follow us on social media. The links are in the show notes.